I am going to conclude our study of Romans. It reminds me of a story my old friend Stanley Vogt told me of old British pastor. Um, he was telling me of a, of a gentleman who, two gentlemen who were boasting about the effectiveness of their pastor's preaching. And the one gentleman said, what I like about my vicar is when he says, in conclusion, he doth conclude. And the other said, that's what I like about my pastor. When he says, lastly, he doth last and last and last. <laughs> And I always felt I fit into that last category better than I did the first. Anyway, just came to my mind as we said that. Would you turn with me in your Bibles, though, to Romans chapter 16? Uh, as James says, we're going to look at verses 17 to 27 through the end of the book. And uh, as we come to the conclusion of this letter, I have to admit, I, I like the closings of the letter more than I do the beginnings because oftentimes the things that are most present on the writer's mind come at the end. So if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading this passage together? Again in verse 17, chapter 16, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat, or you can look over the shoulder of the person who is just waiting to get to know you better. <laughs> he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, that would be Luke, Jason, Sosipater, my relatives, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, in other words, he was a scribe copying Paul's word, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we ask in the name of Jesus that your word would open itself to our hearts and to our minds and that we could be people who are more than just hearers, Lord. We would understand how to translate that into being doers as well. Activate your truth in our life by your Holy Spirit and by the grace that you've shown to us so abundantly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul, like Jesus, employed a technique that today we refer in communications, or more specifically, corrective communication, uh, the sandwich technique. And what is a sandwich technique? Well, basically, you, in short, you wrap praise around a, a brown criticism or correction, but it begins obviously with the idea of commendation. You, you tell somebody, you know, I want to let you know you're doing a good job, I appreciate all your efforts, your hard work, 
And then you follow with a but, and sometimes in this case it's a very long but, um, a correction basically, but I want you to be mindful of these things. Here are really the points that you can work on. And then finally you close with affirmation. You build the person back up again. And essentially that's what we see Paul doing in this closing passage. He, he has a commendation for them in verse 19 where he says to them, everyone has heard about your obedience and so I am full of joy over you. In other words, Paul's almost saying, I am confident that everything that I have said to you over the previous 16 chapters, you're not going to only read and listen to, but you're going to apply to your life. And I, I'm rejoicing now in the results, the impact, the consequence of your having heard and responded faithfully these things. But then he kind of lays into a corrective. In fact, there's seven things that we might say that he emphasizes beginning with, first of all, saying, watch out. Really give a, a tremendous amount of tension, attention, if you will, to those who will cause divisions and put obstacles in your way. Not so much identifying people that he's focusing on, but realizing that it was likely that as soon as they had read this letter, there would be people who would begin to take it and try to get it to say something different than what it actually was saying. In fact, that's why, as the Amplified put it, he says, be on your guard against those kind of things, that your ears begin to become peaked. And then secondly, he says, be wise about what is good and innocent about things that are evil. Or as Peterson put it, he said, make sure every good thing is the real thing. To make sure you're discerning about things that you embrace, that you don't just accept everything that's said to you as being factual or truthful. The thirdly, he says, crush Satan under your feet. Uh, rather than you being living a life being crushed and being captive, as, as Paul described in, in 2 Timothy 2.6, where he talked about people who were trapped by the devil, who were taken captive to do his will. He says, rather than being a captive, you are in the position in Christ to crush the enemy under your feet by the word of truth, by the spirit of God, and by faithfulness and obedience to his will. That fourthly, he wants them to be established by his gospel, to be stable and firm and consistent. That fifthly, he wants them to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally, the word means to preach it. And that sixthly, that you would believe him. Sounds like an obvious exhortation, but there are times when we need to be challenged. You need to just choose to believe God. Some people say, well, I don't feel like believing God. Well, you know, that's not even really the critical point. The critical point is, am I choosing to believe what God has said to be true and acting therefore upon it? And ultimately, he said, seventhly, to obey him that we might walk in obedience that becomes the corrective. And then finally, Paul refers, returns to the affirmation when he tells him in verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. That ensured that the ability to live up to the Christ callings and standards is not simply a matter of forcefulness or determination or willpower or energy. It's really God extending the grace, a grace that often comes to us when we first of all say, Lord, I know what your truth says. I don't think I can live up to it. Give me the grace. 
And it's that humility, that honesty with God that you're asking me to do something, God, that isn't native to my human nature. It's not something that instinctually I'm going to do, like loving my enemies. But God, I know that that's what you want. Therefore, I pray that you'd give me the grace to do that which is above and beyond my natural ability, that which is really the expression of your Spirit's power, the evidence and the truthfulness of you living inside of my life. Now, the reason I would say that Paul closes with this emphasis was because he knew that there was a real danger that was threatening the health and the life of the church, that there were persons who were waiting to cause divisions, or literally the word is dissension or schisms. It's the idea of creating tension and controversy and argumentation. It's the kind of thing that Well, we live in a very contentious culture today where we seem to not be able to pass the opportunity to point out something that's wrong with something or someone in some way. Well, you know he does this or she's that way. And he said there are going to be people who are going to do that in, in theological ways as well. They're going to create controversies. They're going to say things like, well, you know, that grace thing is fine enough as long as you don't let it get you carried away. And that's the idea of grace. I need to be carried away, and it's there to carry me away, to enable me to do what I cannot do of myself. He knew that there were, as we've talked about, the Judaizers who would come in and would prefer to guide them in the direction of legalism and rule-keeping and regulations rather than focusing upon having a relationship with Jesus simply by following Him. And secondly, he said, they will put obstacles. It's interesting, the word that's used here in the original literally means to lay a trap. It's like the snare that you catch a bird in. It's like when we had a raccoon that was continually coming and eating my dog's food. You know, I mean, I was too lazy to take the food away, so I thought, well, I need to get rid of the raccoon. So I went down to the Humane Society. They lent me this wonderful little trap that I put on the back deck with some dog food inside of it, and I waited to come out in the morning and find that I had captured the raccoon. When I came out, I found that the raccoon had destroyed the trap. Tried to explain it to him. I didn't bend this thing like that. This thing got in there and burrowed his way out one way or another. At that point, I decided to move the dog food. I was frightened of what he might do to me. But the whole point was that that I was setting a trap to entangle and to capture this animal. And I had to promise them before they gave me a trap that I wouldn't kill the raccoon. Anyway, that's why I didn't catch it, I think. God wanted me to keep my word. But But he's saying that more importantly, there are going to come these authoritative people who are going to say things that are contrary to the teachings which you have heard. Peterson again says, they take bits and pieces of the teaching, he says, and then use them to make trouble. And so he says, you need to be careful. In fact, it's a kind of dynamic that we counter all the time where people say, well, I've read the Bible or you know what the Bible says. And then they begin to express something that you go, I don't think that's what the Bible says. If in fact you actually know enough about the Bible to make that observation. But Paul says what's really more troubling is that their motivation is not simply uh, someone who is ignorant or themselves have been deceived. 
These people have gone from being deceived to becoming really kind of polished deceivers. There's a selfish ambition that they are operating in, because they're not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. It's interesting, even that word appetites is fascinating in the original because it refers to really the stomach or the belly, but at its root meaning, it talks about an empty cavity, that there's an empty cavity in their life, and they're trying to fill it, fill it by manipulating other people, using other people to enrich or enhance themselves. And he says, you have to understand that their goal is not to draw you close to Christ, but rather to take control of your life. The technique even is fascinating that he says they use because he says by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the minds of naive people. And again, the naive there means literally a, a no distrust. Now we think, well, I don't want to be a distrustful person, but Jesus was. In John, in the second chapter, he ends by saying, Jesus entrusted himself to no man because he knew what was in every man. That's why the Bereans were more noble, Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, than other Gentiles that Paul administered to because after they had listened to Paul, then they went back to the Scriptures to confirm whether or not what he was saying was actually what the Bible taught. That even the Apostle Paul did not set himself above that kind of evaluation or scrutiny or investigation. And it's naive to simply say, well, they said it with such confidence, it must be true. Now, there are people who are very confident and basically because they're very wrong. There's nobody who's more confident than somebody who is completely wrong. <laughs> That's why they're so confident. But the whole point is, these men, he says, as Peter would warn later on, in their greed, these teachers will exploit you. They'll use you for their own personal gain. And he adds, with stories they have made up. Now, it's not the first or the only time that concerns about false teachers and false teachings were expressed in the New Testament. In fact, I found 18 different times that Jesus warned us. Things like Matthew 7, 15, where he said, watch out for false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. In other words, the, the false prophet or the false teacher never comes to you and says, by the way, before I start talking, I want to let you know that everything I'm going to tell you is a lie. You know, they, they don't do that. In other words, they say quite the opposite. Let me tell you why you should believe everything I say without question. And he says you have to understand that they are really using the ploy because they want to devour you, they want to consume you, or as Peter would say, they want to make merchandise out of you. The idea that you are viewed by them as an objective to the accomplishment of their need or their goal. They want something of yours. But he also, in, in, in chapter 10 and 24 and on and on, he goes, be on your guard, watch out, be careful that no one deceives you. So that Jesus repeatedly warned. In fact, we find that the other New Testament writers did as well. Uh, in Acts 20, when Paul is talking to the elders of Ephesus before he goes to Jerusalem and is consequently arrested by the Jews and then turned over to the Romans. But he said to them, he says, but keep watch over yourselves and then he said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, even from your own number. And it's amazing, as Paul is saying, looking at the elders of Ephesus, and he says, I know that even some here 
who are in leadership in this church will arise, distort the truth, and he says, for a purpose. They'll twist the word of God in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now you'd sit back and go, why would anybody do that? Well, you know, there's often this emptiness, this, this hole in men's hearts, and they seek to fill it by getting the recognition, the praise, the, the adoration, the approval, the attention, the audience of other people, and it makes you feel better. And as a consequence, he says, they're going to be driven by that, that own ego deficiency in their own life. And they will tw twist the word of God in just a way in order to be able to meet that void in themselves. That's why Peter as well said, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the air of error. And the new NIV says lawless men. The, the word is variously translated as wicked or in unprincipled men. Men who aren't held to a higher standard, they're held to a personal standard of their own attainment. In fact, it's important to note that every book of the New Testament, with the exception of the tiny little letter of Philemon, has a warning in it about false teaching, about false doctrine, about false prophets. Every single one of them warned that this was a potential and a concern that we should have about as we progress in our Christian lives. Now, ironically, the danger of this happening is probably more real today than at any other time in the history of the church, and in part because of the information age in which we live. It's interesting to me how many people I've had over the years come to me and saying, well, you know, I I'm, I'm learned this and I learned that. And I would ask them, well, where did you learn it? And they would tell me from my best friend, Google. And, you know, and one of the things we know that if it's on the internet, it's true. Because they wouldn't let them put anything out there that isn't true. But you see... One of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12 is that in the last days, he said, wickedness was increased. Then in a sense, he said, as we draw near to the close of this era of human history, which is going to be completed with the return of Jesus Christ, he says, you're going to see things not getting better and better every day. You're going to see them going the opposite direction. Now, for Americans, this is hard stuff because we have to be, we tend to be so optimistic about the future. We're looking for that Disney's great big beautiful tomorrow and things are going to get better and better. And I don't want to be negative. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not depressed and I'm not hoping things will get worse for you. I want things in my life, your life, everyone's life to get better and better. I want the economy to improve. I want everybody to be healthy, wealthy and strong and happy and all those kinds of things. But I also know the scripture says as we come into those closing chapters of human history, as Corey Denboom so adequately put it, you better hold very lightly to the things and loosely to the things of this life because they may be required of you. In fact, one of the messages that Paul warned would be given in the end times is that there would be peace and prosperity and then said sudden destruction will befall them. We live in a unique time though in human history. 
And for us, it's a time that I think can be summarized by a simple word, a simple four-letter word. No, not that one. A simple word, M-O-R-E, more. Why do I say that? We have more of everything than any other people in the history of the world. We have more food. We have more money. We have more comfort. We have more clothing. We have more travel. We have more transportation. We have more communication. We have more experiences. We have more entertainment. We have more drugs. We have more weapons. We have more excuses. Yet despite all of the stuff and the things we are probably the least happy, less secure people in many generations. We know more about stuff that matters less. We're inundated with information but possess little insight. We're eminently knowledgeable but largely devoid of wisdom. We possess unlimited facts but know little of the truth. And for the church, there is an even greater irony. We have more of the Word of God than any other people in the history of the world, and yet we use it less. It's interesting. I mean, the surveys that are being done right now by a myriad of different research groups is enlightening at the very least. Nine out of ten Americans have at least one Bible. Praise God. Most have three Bibles. Considering the fact that I have about 103, that probably covers a lot of you more than the survey, so it's probably not that balanced. But even when we talk technologically, the Bible is at our fingertips wherever we are. We can download the Bible for free on any computer or any smartphone. There's a proliferation of programs and apps. I know that on my own laptop, I have four different Bible search programs. On my phone, I have three. I don't know why. I'm addicted. But the point is that we have all of this, and yet at the end of the day, we utilize it so little. In fact, we could say, most of the research is saying, we are becoming a biblically illiterate culture. We're like Coleridge's ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, yet not a drop to drink. At the same time that people have this flood of information, it's almost like every communication orifice is just pumping out biblical information in unlimited quantities, and yet at the same time people are dying of thirst because they don't know the truth of God. The surveys reveal the problem in all of its starkness. 60% of churchgoers read their Bibles only occasionally, and many of them not at all. They go to church, they listen to the message, and they're going to survive spiritually all week on that. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels or can identify even two or three of the disciples or name five, the first five books of the Bible or even identify five of the Ten Commandments. Researcher George Barnes said, no wonder people break the Ten Commandments. They don't know what they are. And you may be sitting there saying, well, that seems extreme. I'm telling you, go out on the street and talk to people, and you will find 
He's saying, can you name five of the Ten Commandments? And their first response, more likely than not, will be ten what? 82% of Americans believe, 82% of us believe, God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Now, I didn't mean to say that to embarrass you. It's just not. You know, nor is godliness, cleanliness next to godliness. They believe that the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is to take care of your family. I'm not saying taking care of your family isn't important, but it is not the most important thing to do. Taking care of your family is not number one. Taking care of your soul is number one. <laughs> if you don't know Jesus and go to hell forever, that's, that's not going to make any difference in terms of the welfare of your family. That 50% of graduating high school students, high school seniors, thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. But here's the craziest part of it all. Here's the craziest part. <laughs> George Gallup writes, he says, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. In fact, he says, they consider the Bible to be important in a general sort of way, but they don't consider the Bible to be authoritative, at least enough to place a claim on their lives or to be binding upon their actions. In other words, in short, he's saying that we look at the Bible and we pick and choose what we want to believe and what we reject what we don't want to believe. And increasingly, I'm finding this is a theological position for many within the church today because the Bible is no longer that ultimate authority. We used to be able to say, the Bible says, I remember so clearly Billy Graham and his crew saying, the Bible says, and everybody listened up because there was not only authority, but there was a binding authority that laid claim to my actions, but no longer. People very, very confidently will just simply say, well, I, I don't believe that part. And so what we find is that there are what we'd call unbiblical sinful behaviors being increasingly embraced and accepted by, non, by Christian believers because they look at a passage that says this is sin and they say, well, uh, I like the person who has that lifestyle, therefore I'm going to say it's no longer sin. Why does any of this matter? Why does it matter? Well, how can I watch out? How can I be on guard against and stay away from something like false teachers or false teachings if I don't really know what the true teaching is? The simple fact is I can't. I remember when I was in first time I was in Egypt and uh, we went in, we were traveling across the, the desert. And you've seen the movies of the, the Sahara Desert, you know, where it's just white sand in every direction. I just want to tell you from personal experience, it's white sand in every direction. <laughs> I mean, why there was anything out in the middle, I think probably because we needed gas and water and a Coke. But the problem is we pulled in and, and we're sitting there drinking, enjoying it. I get up to go to the restroom and there's a carpet on the floor and I just walked right across it and went into, and my host, a, a Christian pastor, freaked out because I had just walked across a Muslim prayer carpet. 
And he was terrified that somebody saw me being so irreligious. Now, I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. The whole point is you can't avoid doing something wrong or stupid or harmful if you don't know it's wrong or stupid or harmful. I mean, if you're just simply following the Pokemon Go and you step off a cliff, that's not your fault because your phone told you it's okay. Maybe a bad illustration. I don't know. But you can only identify something as counterfeit by becoming familiar with what is real. That's why when Paul says, I want you to be wise about things that are good. How do I become wise about what is good? I read the good book, as it once was referred to. The source of the knowledge of what is good. And I become simple regarding evil. Not, not stupid in the sense of simple, but simple that I am not sophisticated in dark things. And increasingly, I think in our culture, we're, even the church is becoming sophisticated in dark things. We, when sometimes I just hear the movies that people enjoy, I think to myself, boy, that's dark. I remember having this debate years ago about the whole Harry Potter series of things and, and I had, you know, some people are saying, it's of the devil and other people saying, well, it's no different than Lord of the Rings or, or uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And I thought about this for a long time and I suddenly came to a realization that there was actually a dark, great difference between them. Because Tolkien and Lewis, when they wrote their books of which the movies were made, were men who were trying to create metaphoric and allegorical testimonies of God. Throughout the story, there is God who is the ultimate ruler of the universe. Aslan controls all things. But in Harry Potter, there is no God other than the God that we find within ourselves and the power we try to tap into. So that essentially one says man is the center of the universe and the other was saying no, God is the center of the universe. But yet people become so sophisticated in the dark arts and not realizing that they are becoming wise concerning evil. And often they have to pay a price for that because the time and the energy that I'm spending enamored with this whole thing Subtle and hidden philosophy of life is time that I have neglected from spending in the word of life and understanding the life of God. You see, your worldview is shaped by what you look at. I think there was a reason God in his wisdom isolated me for the first five years of my Christian life and I, you know, I'm not recommending this to anybody. In fact, I didn't even recommend it for myself. It's just kind of what naturally evolved. But, you know, when you're a Christian, a hippie that becomes a Christian and you live in isolation, you know, we had no TV, we had no telephone, we had no radio, we had no, no, you know, we didn't go to movies, we didn't do anything. In fact, I didn't even have, I read one book in five years other than the Bible, but I spent five years reading the Bible from cover to cover, to cover to cover, to cover to cover, to cover, to cover, to cover over again. I don't know how many times. I just know I read the New Testament six times the first six weeks I was a Christian. Now some people say, well, I could never read that entire book. Really, it's a pretty short book. 
if you just take the time to read it. But I realized years later that somehow that immersion within Scripture had a way of affecting the way my mind sees the world around me. Because you will be conformed to what you view. It will shape and mold your thinking. Now my wife tells me I'm not a fun person to watch most movies with, especially ones that are Bible stories. Because even when I was watching The Passion, which did a really good job of following the culture and the history and times in many other ways, I, even with that, I, sh I couldn't keep my trap shut and go, well, that's not accurate. <laughs> there you go, ruin it for everybody. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. But I just know the story from the author. <laughs> and I know that that wasn't part of his story. But you see, it's only as you handle the truth that you can recognize when something isn't the truth. In the same way that banks train their tellers to, to recognize counterfeits, not by studying counterfeits, but by rather studying what is accurate. They handle it. I think every time I go overseas and I, I give them a $100 bill to change into the currency of that particular country, these men and women behind those counters and those little casas are sitting there with lights and they're looking for a series of telltale indicators to prove to them that this is the real thing. They know what to look for. They don't look for the counterfeit. They look for the true in the same way that they give tellers stacks of currency and just have them count it. And they slip in a counterfeit every way and they get to the point where their finger, their thumb touches a, a note and they go, wait a minute, it doesn't feel right. There are times when we become so familiar with what is the truth of God that we hear something otherwise and it just doesn't feel right. I may not be able to tell you what's wrong with that, but something does not have the ring of truth to it. But we might ask, why in the world has this happened? <laughs> in an age where we have more access to the Word of God and, and things that can help us to understand the Word of God, why in the world is this happening? And I, I came up with four reasons, and these are my opinions. You can tell me what you think. But I think, first of all, it's because we, we live in a increasingly antithetical, aggressively antagonistic secular culture. We are in America in, you know, technically a post-Christian era. We're going the way of Europe so that we find increasingly when we encounter people that they do not subscribe to the biblical view of the world and reality and man and the rest. And so they have no, no respect for us when we say, but that's sin or that's murder. They don't, they don't respect that. And so as you come under the greater pressure of the culture around you, by human nature, we as humans are creatures of the herd and we want to fit in. We want to go along so that we can get along. And the pressure is there socially and otherwise just simply to conform. You don't even have to be threatened with any kind of harm. You just simply don't want to stand out. To be called out in a setting that is semi or public is frightening to most of us and so as a result we just kind of go dark and we allow the prevailing views to predominate because there's simple silence. 
I thought it was interesting as I was watching an interviewer talking to some demonstrators outside of a recent political convention, and um, he, he was talking, he said, why are you here demonstrating? He said, well, because I want to stand against these fascists. And he's going on about fascists and fascists. And finally, the interviewer said in a moment of silence, I think, as he stopped to catch his breath, he says, well, what exactly is a fascist? And the guy mumbled and bumbled some nonsensical thing. You could tell as his eyes turned upwards and he was trying to find out what does that word mean? And he'd really not given any real thought. He didn't even know, know what he believes. But that's no worse than some of us sometimes when we say, well, Jesus saves. And somebody says, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, I'll give you the number of my church. You can ask them. Why don't we know? The second thing I find is that this is happening because we don't read, we watch. We are becoming in America, and this isn't my view, this is the educator's view, that we're becoming functionally illiterate. Not that we don't know how to read, but we don't really read books, we watch stuff. And the problem with watching stuff is it's almost always pre-digested. So it's kind of like eating baby food, and, and the reality is if you eat baby food, you will never really kind of reach maturity. And Paul said you, you need something more than milk, you need some meat. And yet the church oftentimes never grows into any depth of maturity because we're essentially still eating pablum. But, any, but even, even more concerning to me is that we tend to, they call it the Facebook skim, People get on the internet and they skim data really quickly. And what happens is they never really stop and think deeply. Uh, I've even noticed in my own self, I, I'm a pretty aggressive reader. I read a lot of stuff and I, and I read a lot and I like it, enjoy it. But I found as I was reading some of my devotional thoughts, I have a few people right now who are speaking powerfully into my life, and as I was reading it, I thought, wow, great point, and moving on, and I had to stop and say, wait a minute, rather than reading more, why don't you just stop here and really contemplate what this is trying to say to you and how this applies to you right now? You see, many times we just don't think deeply about things. We give ourselves permission just to skim. And so even though you may say, well, I, I'm, I read all the time. I'm in all Are you actually thinking about what you're reading or are you just skimming through what you're reading? Especially when we talk about reading the Bible. Because I know that some of you are such highly disciplined individuals or maybe you're just OCD. I don't know what it is. But the bottom line is you read the Bible every day, you read three chapters, two chapters, four chapters every day, and you read exactly four chapters, no less, no more, and you do that every day, and you read through it, and da, 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 da. But when you get to the end of the day, do you ever say, well, God spoke to me? As Bill Hybels and the folks from Willow Creek says, we realize that we won many people, but we failed to teach people to be self-feeders. So they depend upon the church to feed them, but they've never learned to feed themselves. The thirdly, what I find is we have often emphasized evangelism at the expense of discipleship. It's amazing when you think about it that Jesus said, here's your mission, Matthew 28, 19. Go and make 
disciples. That's the great commission, is to go and make disciples. Now, understanding that we have to preach the gospel in order to make disciples, but the ultimate objective, the evidence that we have done the work of the kingdom is we've made disciples. And a disciple means somebody who is disciplined in the way of his master. And yet, as Hybels and others realize that we have emphasized evangelism so much that we've failed to really inculcate a spiritual dimension in their life. Instead of challenging people to think deeply, we just want them to feel good. We become more concerned about getting folks connected to the church than we are about getting them connected to Jesus and his word. And as a result, in order to do that, we have to go to the lowest common denominator, which means we dumb down the message so that nobody can miss its most basic tenets. And I'm not saying there is not a context for that or there's not an application, but at some point we need to grow up spiritually. At some point, we need to, to really begin to take it on ourselves as this is part of the process that I know his word. There's a fourth thing I came up with, though, that I think why we, we are in the state of affairs that we are today. Because not just that we have an adversarial culture or that uh, we're being influenced in a way that makes us skimmers rather than readers uh, or that we are so focused upon evangelism. I mean, all those things I think are critical, but here's the one that concerns me the most. Many of us really don't take the Bible seriously or even spend much time with it because we don't like what it says. We don't want to have to obey it but here's the problem. It's like seed that is never planted in the ground. And that's what Jesus said in Luke 8. He said the word of God is seed. It's seed that you plant into the ground. But if you never plant it, one thing I've discovered is that if you don't plant it, you have absolutely zero chance of it ever growing into anything and producing fruit. It just won't happen. And so that the same way when I read the Bible, I may not comprehend everything that I'm reading or be able to explain much of what I'm reading. But I know that as I read it, there's a spiritual interchange that takes place, that seed is being planted into my heart, and this is going to grow inside of me, not because I have made it grow because God, one man can plant, another man can water, only God can give the increase, but until that seed is planted in my heart, it has no chance of ever producing the fruit of the kingdom of God. So that there are many people who are believers but have never seen the benefit of being a believer because they've never understood as, as the, David said in the Psalms, that your word is as important to me as my daily food. In the same way, I understand the necessity of eating. You don't have to tell me that I need to make sure and eat unless I'm sick. Because there was a point in my life I was so sick, I never thought about eating. It was amazing. I lost 30 pounds. It's a great diet to go on. I recommend cancer to everybody, right? <laughs> but seriously, if you're healthy, 
There is a hunger. If you are spiritually healthy, there is a hunger for the Word of God. You want to eat it and you read it. And that's why when I say as a young believer, I read the New Testament six times in six weeks because I couldn't get enough of it. I just had to know it. I had to know it. I had to know it. And the more I knew it, the more I believed that it was true. And when I hear people say, well, I just don't believe the Bible is true, I ask them, Have you, are you reading it? And the answer is always the same. Well, no, I don't read it because I don't believe it. Well, let me tell you, if you start reading it, you'll start believing it. Because not only will you see its truth as being compelling, but you'll find something begins to change on the inside as you plant the seeds of truth in your heart and they begin to grow. It's the prescription for depression, discouragement, unbelief, fear, doubt. It's the thing that changes because you're putting life into yourself. The spirit of Jesus in you will bear witness with the spirit of truth that wrote this book and suddenly there will be communion between you and God simply because you're reading this. So what can we do? Well, I think the obvious answer is first and foremost, you just need to be in the word of God. You need to be in the word so the word can be in you. It's that simple. The secondly, you need to be in a church that truly teaches the Word of God. Let me think of one right quickly. Here. <laughs> because without being in a context where the Word of God is held in high esteem, the standards begin to drift downwards and the accountability begins to be lost. Who holds us accountable? God's Word holds us accountable. God's Word sets the standard. It's interesting about standards. Uh, a recent study that just came out, I mean, shock of horrors and amazement. Who would believe it? But after 20 years of passing out condoms in our schools to help rid ourselves of teen pregnancy and STDs, they can't believe it. The rate of pregnancy among teens and sexual transmitted disease has jumped 20%. And they came to this amazing conclusion. By giving them condoms, we basically were saying it's okay to have sex out of marriage. You see, we took away the standard. And when we read the Word of God, what are we doing? We're raising the standard over and over again. We raise the standard, and the standard says, no, this is the way you go. Do I always live up to it? <laughs> Would you believe me if I said I did? No. But it still remains the standard that humbles us before his presence and says, God, give me the grace to live your truth. Thirdly, we need to simply commit to obey the word so that the seeds of truth can be planted into our lives. To the Corinthians, Paul said, he said, talked about his, that a life may be revealed, that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. That his life might be revealed in, in your body because you are in the Word of God. Timothy put it, Paul said to Timothy, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. See your spiritual progress. Jesus said, herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. 
We have disciples being disciplined in the ways of our master. How do I learn the ways of my master? By knowing his word as I know his word and his word is in me. It begins to create a whole different path of life for me as a Christian. I don't think any of us as serious Christians don't want to grow and mature and be a witness for Christ. They don't want him to reveal his life in us. But what we oftentimes overlook is if we don't begin to take on the simple responsibility to be men and women of his word, which means that we just simply read it and we pay attention to what we're reading and we give thought to it, then unless we do that, we will always struggle because I find time and again that people will come after having made life decisions that have turned out to be very negative and hurtful. And I'm somewhat disappointed in the sense of saying, but the scriptures say. And sometimes people say, well, I didn't know that. And sometimes people say, I know it, but I was afraid to trust God. So I did something else. It's a reason that Paul said earlier in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes to the Word of God. These things are all interlocked. They're all connected. And so the question I think that ultimately we have to ask ourselves first and foremost is, does Christ's Spirit, that Spirit of truth, live inside of me? Do I have the Spirit of truth living inside of me? Am I truly born again? Does God live inside of me? Is His Spirit there? Because I guarantee you that if you don't have Christ in your heart, you're going to try to read the Bible and you are going to be B-O-R-E-D, bored. Uh, because it, it's, there's no connection. It's just words on a page. Maybe if you're really bright, you can intellectualize it and in something or other. But the simple fact is you're not going to be somebody who's going to eat and hunger and thirst and feel fulfilled by reading the Word of God if you don't have Jesus living in your heart. So the first step really is you need Jesus living inside of you. But assuming that you have asked Christ into your heart, then you have to feed that and nurture that. And I think it's great that you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm happier that you're here than if you weren't. I don't want to do this by myself. But you have to learn how to self-feed. And you have to be able to evaluate whether or not what I'm saying is even the truth. Does it, is this really what Scripture says? Now, you may say, I, I don't respect the Scripture. That's fine. But is this what Scripture says? Because that's all I'm concerned about is being faithful to what this says. But you can only know that. I know I, I just have this face you can't help but trust. I have a face for radio. <laughs> but the simple fact is that by smooth talk, they'll deceive the naive. Don't be naive. Be naive about evil in the sense that you don't are expert in it, but know what this says. Know this book. Know the Word of God. Let it live and reign inside of your life. And you'll be fruitful. Well, that's the book of Romans. Next week I'm going to be gone. Uh, Pastor Drew is going to be filling the pulpit. Uh, my wife and I are 
flying down to California on Wednesday to celebrate my in-laws' 70th wedding anniversary. And um, as I told my wife, I said that um, even though driving to central California in the middle of uh, July with temperatures that feel like divine punishment for eternal sin, um, we got to do this because these are the only people I've ever known in my whole life who made it to 70 years of marriage. <laughs> and I just want to get a contact high off of them for a little bit here, yeah. <laughs> But I trust you'll, you'll support Drew next week. Bless him. He's a good man. And quite honestly, I just explain somewhat to you part of my objectives. I'm really trying to get some of the younger pastors into the pulpit so they can get pulpit time and get pulpit experience. So you can help. I mean, it's probably believable. I was going to say you probably won't believe it, but you probably would believe it. Um, when I started filling pulpits, um, <clears throat> It was kindness of strangers, really. It was taking place. It was, you know, I mean, I, I look back on it and just shudder many times at things I didn't said. But people gave me a chance. And I just want you to recognize that, I mean, I'm not planning on, on leaving or retiring. That's a rumor I kind of have to always, it's the constant whack-a-mole in my life. But what I am saying is that at the same time, and this will be a relief to many of you, I'm not going to live forever. And, uh, you know, and so we're really trying to prepare for the future if God tarries. So I just want to make, give an exhortation. You know, when you hear that I'm not here, I'm flattered that you, say, you decide to go to the lake instead. Um, but flattering me isn't helpful. I've already got a big head. I don't need any more flattery. What we need is to really recognize that we're not just a church built around a pastor. We're a church built around a community and God is raising up a whole new generation of young men, young women, and we want to give them our recognition, our support, our prayers, our encouragement, and we want to allow God to speak into our lives through them because he does. I sit with these young guys, and they share things with me, and I am really ministered to, sometimes really convicted by the things that they share because God speaks through them. So anyway, that's what's going on, and uh, pray for us as we're surrounded by a lot of non-unsaved Christian fam non-Christian families, that God would use us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. It's certainly an understatement at, after that message, I know, but I thank you for it, Lord, because it has been profound in my life and in the life of so many others that, Lord, it's, it is, as David said, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And even though on one hand we know that, Lord, you hold the path of our lives in the palm of your hand, at the same time, Lord, it's so beautiful to read your word and know that the path becomes clear. For some here today, Lord, the path is not clear because they don't know your word, and so they're often confused and conflicted about the things going on in their life. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would create such a hunger, the very hunger Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
after righteousness. That's the righteousness of your word, Lord, that they hunger and thirst for it because they're the ones who will be filled. I pray that we would yearn to be filled to overflowing, that we would not just have the knowledge of your word, Lord, but we would have the knowledge of you. For how else are we going to understand who you are until we read what you have said about yourself? So God, passion us. Passion us with a love for your word, a hunger for your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close, we just encourage you to spend whatever time or that God has put in your heart to reflect upon something that I may have said that would have touched your life. Um, I would ask you to pray that God would just bring a renewed commitment into your life to be a student, a prayerful student of his word. As you partake of these elements, just keep in mind that the whole reason we do that is because his word instructs us to do it. So it's merely an act of obedience. But obedience always produces a blessing. And so as you respond to God, whether it's from taking the elements of the communion or it's repenting of something in your life that God says in his word shouldn't be there, that obedience is blessed by God. And you'll only know that for yourself as you do it. So I encourage you to do it. If you don't know Jesus, I, myself and some others will be on the wings here. We'll be glad to pray with you or with regarding any issue that we have. But we just pray that today we would respond to whatever the Holy Spirit is doing right now in every heart and every mind for his glory.